there's something about our psyche that fails to recognize the things around us that are most constant, and yet we always, always seem to recognize the things that are least constant, like suffering, like pain. I rarely wake up in the morning and say, thank God, I feel so good today. But if I wake up and I feel lousy, that's on my mind. I spent two days last week on my back, laying on a bag of ice with my feet up in a chair, working the phone and watching television, did a little reading. Uh, because one of those weird things in my back, many of you know I had a pretty bad accident in college and, and I've got some problems back there. And every now and then something moves or something gets pinched and I just fall to the ground, just like, you know, a bag of rocks or something. And, and that happened, I think, Wednesday of last week. And those two days were miserable. And the things that are least constant, thank God, I don't spend my whole life on my back laying on a bag of ice with my feet in a chair. Those are the things I seem to recognize most. It's like on a good day, I don't recognize the good feeling nearly as much as I recognize the bad feeling on a bad day. You understand what I'm saying? One of those things that we so often recognize is not only personal suffering, but worldwide suffering. And worldwide suffering and the existence of evil is pushing some people away from Christianity. We began this series several weeks ago uh, with one disconcerting statistic. One out of four adults in America consider themselves non-affiliated with any organized religion. They call themselves nuns. They're uninterested in being a part of Christianity or a part of Islam or a part of any Christian denomination, Catholicism, Protestant, doesn't matter. They don't want to be associated with it. And they're not leaving Christianity primarily because they find atheism or agnosticism so appealing. It's not like believing in nothing is so much more appealing. It's just that they're losing their love for Christianity. Christianity is becoming far less appealing. So the whole idea for this series, uh, Something, Nothing, came from that one statistic. We borrowed most of this information from Andy Stanley. He's got his own series on this idea. And last week in my research, I came across yet another statistic that bears this out. According to the Pew Research Center, 78% of nuns, remember they're non-affiliated with any organized religion, say they were raised as a member of a particular religion before shedding their religious identity in adulthood. The question I want to ask today is why? Why? I told you a couple of weeks ago, the handful of people that I know who call themselves atheists or agnostics did not start out that way. They grew up like I grew up. They grew up in a Christian church. They grew up in a Baptist church, a Methodist church, a church of God. But now as adults, it's as if they've outgrown that childhood faith somehow. And they're drifting away from Christianity. Many of you drifted for a time until you found Grace Community Church. Many of you walked away for a time disbelieving in God, if you will. And according to the Pew Research Center, the main reason or the bulk of these people, four out of five who've drifted away, started out in Christian homes, started out in Christian churches. Last time we talked, as you recall, Christianity did not begin because people believed in something. Christianity began because people saw something. Now, I bring that to your attention because for some reason in 2017, especially among our young people, among millennials, we have this mistaken notion that somehow Christianity is this fragile religion. It's just waiting for someone to pull the right straw. It's like a stack of Jenga rocks or blocks waiting for someone to make the wrong move and everything's going to come tumbling to the ground. Like... 
In the beginning, 2,000 years ago, some assumed that the disciples all huddled up and decided to believe the same thing about Jesus, and we built Christianity for 2,000 years on their belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Bible reveals, and I showed you this last time, Christianity did not begin because people chose to believe something. Christianity began because people saw something. People started by connecting the dots of the Old Testament scriptures to Jesus as Messiah. But on Friday, when they saw him die, they saw with their own eyes. By Saturday, they thought, "Uh uh-oh, we were wrong. But on Sunday, when they saw him alive, that changed everything. First, it was a few. First, it was a dozen. Then it was dozens. And then it was hundreds. And then eventually thousands. People who saw Jesus resurrected alive post-crucifixion, and that began the New Testament uh, motivation or revolution of the New Testament church. Christianity began because people saw, and those eyewitnesses were so powerful, and their testimony was so compelling that eventually tens and hundreds of thousands of people were buying into Christianity, revolutionizing the world at that time. Today, today, my contention is to ask, why would you ever walk away from that? Why do people depart from Christianity? You see, it's my belief that when people drift away from Christianity, they do so either prematurely because they haven't thought things through, or they do so because they don't understand true biblical Christianity. People who walk away from Christianity often do so because of suffering and evil in the world. It could be personal suffering. It could be one of those faith-crushing events. I mean, you're just plodding along in your faith, and yeah, you believe in God, and yeah, you believe in Jesus, and yeah, you go to church, and yeah, you can take the Bible, and and, and it means something to you, but something comes your way that just devastates you. I mean, it knocks you on your back. And eventually, over a period of time, you realize, I just don't have it in me anymore to believe. Because life's too difficult. Life's too hard. Some come to that conclusion not based upon their own suffering, but upon worldwide suffering. Suffering is the major cause that drives people to lose faith in Christianity and lose faith in the very existence of God. Now, here's what I want you to see as we begin. The very reality, the very issue, the problem of suffering that drives people away from Christianity should be their reason to hold on to it. That's what I want you to see. The suffering, the evil, the injustice in the world that pushes people away from Christianity. I just can't believe in your God if he's willing to allow people to suffer worldwide. I just can't believe in your God if he's willing to let this bad thing happen to me or to my mom or to my wife or to my child. If suffering is what drove you away or pushed someone you love away from Christianity, what I want to convince you of today is that ought to be the very reason you cling to faith in God. You dive in head first. Let's talk for a moment about justice. Justice. Um, when I was little, we said the Pledge of Allegiance every day in, Sunday, in school. Uh, I don't know if they still do that. I certainly hope they do. Uh, but we started every morning in classroom. You know, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God. Notice how I didn't pause there. One nation under God. I had a teacher that drilled that into us. We were not allowed to go. One nation under God. Oh, he would come unglued. One nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and what? Justice for all. Do you know that that is a distinctly Christian doctrine? 
That is characteristic of Christianity first, justice for all. Let's talk about injustice for a moment because it is the injustice in the world that is pushing people away from Christianity. The problem of injustice, evil in the world, even in my life, I would say it's the biggest problem to maintaining faith in God. One common thread, one common denominator through all of the stories of the people I know who've drifted away from God, who've drifted away even from theism, believing in God, is suffering. Either personal suffering or world suffering. But listen very carefully. Skepticism in light of suffering and evil is built around a basic foundational belief that we shouldn't suffer and evil shouldn't exist, right? I mean... If you're drifting away from God because of suffering and even in the evil in the world, you have to believe by default that mankind should not suffer and that evil should not exist. Let me ask you a question. Where did that thought process originate? Where did that idea come from? It didn't come from evolution and natural selection. You see, if we're all biology, if we're just all chemistry, If we're just all subject to the natural laws of physics in the universe, evolution and natural selection depend on death. They depend on destruction, violence, power from the strong over the weak. Evolution and natural selection is all about the survival of the fittest. So why would we ever call suffering unjust? That's just the natural way of evolution. It's a small cog in the wheel of evolution. It's part of the plan of natural selection. If there is no God, what right do I have to look at someone who lives half a world away and feel bad for their suffering? They're being evolved out. They're being evolved from. Evolution and natural selection know nothing of justice. They know nothing of injustice. Now... Here's, this is going to surprise you, and I hope not to upset you. I don't want to you know, offend you by what I'm about to say. But you need to understand that this is a first world problem primarily. This whole idea of looking at the world and saying there's so much suffering and evil in the world, the Christian God cannot exist. You know what that is? That's a first world contradiction. That's a first world problem. That's a first world issue. People aren't arguing about this in other parts of the world. This is an American, Canadian, primarily European quandary or contradiction. We're the ones in our air-conditioned auditoriums that debate the existence of God based upon how people live a half a world away. The remarkable thing is this, and I'll put it on the screen. The reality is, in the midst of extraordinary poverty, you often find extraordinary faith, not extraordinary doubt. Isn't that remarkable? You can go to parts of the world that are the poorest, and they're not debating the existence of God based upon the suffering they endure. That's something we do in America. That's something the educated elite do in the universities. That's something in the first world as a problem, not third world. You see, comfortable Americans who are committed to their convenient lives, we're the ones who doubt the existence of God in light of worldwide suffering, not the people who are suffering. So, to all those who have used the argument of worldwide suffering to, quote, disprove the existence of God, to all those who have used other people's suffering to stifle your own personal faith, I say, wait a minute, be careful. Caution. 
Proceed with caution when commandeering other people's suffering to build your case against God. Because as I hope to show you this morning, that's a false argument. It's a straw dog. It's actually insulting to our intelligence. New atheists are guilty of this. Before you tell me that my God doesn't exist because people half a world away are suffering, you need to go talk to the people half a world away who are suffering. Find out if they believe. Find out if they doubt as you doubt. Find out if in their mind, in their faith, they connect the God of God, they connect the dots of God's existence to the suffering in the world. What would surprise you, and this can be measured and research has been done on this topic, very often they do not. As I said, the reality is extraordinary suffering often leads to extraordinary confidence in God. Just ask someone who's gone on one of our mission trips, especially trips to Kenya. John takes groups to Kenya. We take groups to Romania. In the midst of extraordinary poverty, extraordinary suffering, difficulty like you would not believe, difficulty we would not endure or put up with in America, there is great faith. There is great confidence in God. A couple of weeks ago, when John came back, he told me while they were over there in Kenya for 10 days, an 18-month-old baby died of malnutrition. You see, if they're old enough to come to the school that we built... They get food. They get nutrition. But if they're 18 months old and they're hours a walking distance from the church or from the school and they don't, many of them die. And yet what's most amazing about the people that go on these trips, they go over there and for the first couple of days they're going, oh, these poor people, look how they live. These poor people, look what they endure. Look at the difficulty of their lives. And then John and others who go, they come back and on the way back they're saying, good grief, they're happier than I am. They're more joyful in their faith than I am. You've seen the videos. You've watched how they worship. You've seen how they sing. You've witnessed the joy firsthand. Talk to them. Please don't try and tell me that in a broad, sweeping, generalized statement, because people are suffering half a world away, my God cannot exist. That is an inconsistent argument. Here's the big idea for the day. I put it in the program. I'll put it on the screen. Pain and suffering... It's not an argument against God's existence. It's a reminder of how much we actually need Him. See? That's what it is. And third world Christianity gets this. Far more so than we do in America. Far more so. They get it. Christianity is booming in places in the world that are under the most bondage. Did you know that? Christianity is swelling. The mission field is ripe to the harvest, as Jesus put it. In places you and I would never want to go, never want to live. Look, there is no rational argument against the existence or involvement of the God of Jesus based on injustice in the world. Maybe emotional, and I get that. You may feel it, and I get that. It might trouble you. I get that. It's troubled me. But it's not a rational argument. You cannot rationally or logically connect the dot of worldwide suffering, evil in the world, with the existence or non-existence of God. It's inconsistent. If you get past the emotion, and I know that can be difficult sometimes, especially if the suffering is yours, but if you can get past the emotion, you can't make a rational argument that the God Jesus gave to us, the God Jesus described, does not exist in light of suffering and pain. Here, get this, because this is important. 
Further, Christians have never ever made the claim, made the argument for God's existence based upon a world where bad things never happen to good people. Think about that for a minute. We're pushing away from Christianity saying your God cannot exist because of suffering and evil in the world. Who told you that? This book doesn't say that. Christianity doesn't teach that. In fact, as I told you a couple of weeks ago, the foundation of our faith, the beginning of Christianity, was when a very, very, very bad thing happened to a very, very, very good man. You cannot connect the dots of world suffering in a logical fashion to the existence or non-existence of God. Jesus never said that good things... Or bad things will never happen to good people. He never said that. I've never said that. In fact, there are books in the Bible devoted to suffering. First Peter is one of them. James talks about trials and difficulties. Paul's written about this. The Bible never says that bad things never happen to good people. In fact, the Bible says the opposite. In fact, the driving force of first century Christianity was all about suffering. It was all about persecution. It was all about difficulty. It's an emotional argument. Listen, and I get it. It's powerful. Man, it just troubles me greatly that people are suffering the way they are. That this happened to my grandfather. That this happened to my mom. It troubles me greatly the way those people live half a world away. I get that. That's an emotional argument. It's moving, but it's not logical. See? Here's what is logical. Injustice in the world calls into question the justice of God, not his existence. See? If, 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 you're, if, if, if you're troubled by the injustice in the world, worldwide suffering, it makes more sense for you to get good and mad at God than it does for you to stop believing in him. See? The injustice in the world calls into question not whether or not God is out there, Not whether or not he exists, but whether or not he is good, whether or not he is just, whether or not he is all-powerful. It makes a lot more sense, and I'd respect you a whole lot more, if you got angry with God because of the injustice in the world, than I would for you to stop believing. Here's the big question. Why in the world would we assume that if there's a God, he must be good and just? Why? Why? Who taught us that? Why would we assume that if there is a God, he has to be both good and just? Why? Who told you that? The Egyptians didn't believe that. Thousands of years ago, the most sophisticated people in the history of the world had many gods. And they didn't consider those gods both good and just. Some of them were good and just. Some of them were spiteful and vengeful. Fast forward several thousand years, the Greeks didn't believe that gods were both good and just. Julius Caesar and the Romans didn't believe that gods were both good and just. So who are we to say God, if he's out there, has to be both good and just? Who says that? You? Did you make that up? Where'd that come from? Here's the big did you know of the morning. The justice and dignity for all version of God was introduced to the world by Jesus. Jesus is the one to come on the scene and say God is both good and just. God exists and is both good and just. You see, and read your history. History of world civilization. It's in almost every book I've ever read. Before Jesus, 
Local people had local gods and dealt with local issues. Drought, crops, war, famine, illness. Local people had local gods and dealt with local issues. Jesus came on the scene and introduced everyone to a dignity and justice for all God. It was a brand new teaching introduced by Jesus Christ. So stop and think about this. By claiming that dignity and justice are due the masses, you are actually proclaiming the very message of Jesus Christ. You're actually more on my side than you are the other. You are affirming the God of Jesus. Because it was Jesus who said, God loves all. Dignity, justice for all. In fact, most famous verse in all the Bible, John chapter 3, verse 16, it says this. For God so loved the Jews. For God so loved the local people. For God so loved the righteous. For God so loved the religious people who really had their act together. For God so loved the people who were just like me. For God so loved the people who tried to help themselves. That's not at all what it says, is it? You've probably quoted or read that verse a thousand times. Listen to what it says. For God so loved the world regardless. Whether you deserve it or not, whether you're fair and just, whether you are good or whether you are evil, Jesus introduced the world to a God who doesn't love a specific group, doesn't love a hand-picked chosen few. He loves the world. Dignity and justice for all, that's a Jesus thing. But now think about it. Let's back up 2,000 years. In the culture of Israel... In the culture of Roman domination, in the culture of first century Christianity, Jesus said dignity and justice for all during a time when rich ruled over the poor. During a time when the haves had power over the have-nots. During a time when the powerful lorded it over the powerless. During a time when might made me right. If I could take it, it became mine. Into that world, into that world filled with injustice, stepped Jesus Christ who claimed that God loved every single person regardless. And his first century followers embraced that doctrine wholeheartedly. They believed God was both good and just in a culture that was unjust and evil. Listen, if Christianity was so fragile as to be argued out of existence in the year 2017 in light of suffering and evil in the world. Let me tell you something. If it's that fragile, it would have never made it out of the first century because that's all the first century was for followers of Christ. Persecution and suffering. In fact, again, read your history, not just the Bible. For 300 years, if you were a follower of Jesus Christ, all you knew was persecution. All you knew was suffering. Think of the Colosseums. Think of the martyrdom. Think of the sacrifice. In the first century, if I were a Jew and you were a Christian, a follower of Christ, I may stop doing business with you. You may lose your business. That's why so many of the Christians bonded together. That's why they took care of one another. Because they were suffering. That's why books in your New Testament are written to address this very problem. First century, second century, even third century Christianity was no picnic. 
Consider this. The best way to rid the world of injustice is to rid the world of God. Now think about this for a minute. Try to get your brain around this. Because when God is gone, then justice leaves with him. If we can remove God, then we remove the idea, the concept of dignity and justice for all. You see, natural selection knows nothing of justice or injustice. Remember, remember, evolution and natural selection depend on death. They depend on destruction. It depends on survival of the fittest. So if we can remove God, then we can remove his form of justice. We can remove this craving for justice. Can we not? I don't think so. Because then you know what we're left with? We're left with my justice. If God is no longer the standard of justice, then you're left with my justice. Or I'm left with your justice. We're left with government justice. We're left with ISIS judgment or justice. The Klan justice. We're left with rich justice or powerful justice if you take God out of the equation. Look, here's the reality check. When we reject God because of injustice in the world, we don't solve injustice. We actually create it. You see? Who wants to live in a world governed by government justice? By my justice. See, God has a solution to this whole quandary. He's got a solution to this whole problem. We need to open our eyes and see it. Jesus brought us the God is love God. We talked about that last time. God is spirit. God is father. God is love. We love the sound of that, don't we? God is love. Man, sign me up. I will stand in line to buy a ticket. If God is love, he cares for me. He is compassionate. He wants to take care of me. He wants to help me solve my problems. I'm all about God is love. The problem is he didn't stop there. Jesus also taught that God is just. Mm. Not so sure I like that one as much as the first. God is love? Sure. Love the sound of that. God is just? Wait a minute. I better think this through. Not sure I like that part. Because the reality is, as much as we crave justice in the world, look at this. There is no justice without judgment. Who's all for justice or judgment? We're all for justice, but mm, not so much for judgment. Let me ask you something. How do you feel when a son, when a wife, when a husband, when a friend, when an employer points their finger at you and says, listen, you really need to do this. You're wrong about that. Let me tell you your problem. How do you feel inside? What do you want to do? Well, let me tell you your problem. That's what most of us want to do, right? See, we want justice. We're just not really interested in judgment. You see, the fact of the matter is, what I really want is judgment for you, but mercy for me. See? I want judgment for you. That'll bring about justice, but have mercy on me. If God would get busy judging those people half a world away, we could rid the world of injustice. But I hope he stops at the Atlantic coastline because I don't want judgment, right? See, I don't have to go deep in my heart to know that I fall short of God's standard. And you don't either. It's right there on the surface. See, I can't even live up to my own standards, right? I got a list this long of shoulds and ought tos. Man, I'd be better at my job if I did this. And I really shouldn't do that, 
right? If I can't live up to my own standards, how in the world am I going to live up to yours? And how could we ever live up to God's? Now listen very carefully. That's what makes the gospel so powerful. That's what makes the gospel so life-changing. You see? Before God chose to judge me, He offered me a way out. The beauty of God's plan is that into a world that fell short of God's standard, heck, we fall short of our own standard, much less His, God didn't send a judge, He sent a Savior. You know John 3.16, do you know John 3.17? Jesus said, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. John chapter 12, verse 47, Jesus said, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Listen, if you are a fan of justice, you have to be a fan of Christianity. Because only Christianity, and you can read about this, one day, Revelation chapter 20, God will judge the lost of all ages. But He won't judge me. Do you know why? Because first He saved me. That's what the Scripture teaches. That's what Jesus promised. I will not stand before God and be judged based upon the book of life, Revelation 20. Because He saved me first. So into a world that fell short of God's standard, God didn't send a judge to condemn it, to straighten everybody out, to solve or redeem, to rescue or ransom, to clear out all the injustice. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus came first to save, long before God chose to judge. Evil and injustice, they're just not arguments against the existence of God. They're evidence that we so desperately need Him. And if you are a fan of fairness, if you are a fan of justice, if you are a fan of good, then you've got to hope Christianity is true. And it is. Now, we rarely give invitations. I shouldn't say rarely. We don't always give invitations at Grace Community Church, and there's a reason for that. But let me tell you something. If you've been sitting in this these services for these past five weeks and you've heard me talk about authentic faith and the existence of God and you're curious because as a child you might have had some kind of religious conversion but you outgrew it and you left it behind and you're really unsure of what you believe now. I would love to have that conversation with you one-on-one. Fill out a communication card. Make sure I have your phone number. Put in those offering containers and myself or Jonathan, one of us, will contact you this week. That's what we're here for. Let's pray. Father, you're good to us. And while we're confused, troubled, even angry sometimes when we suffer or we see others we love suffering. Father, that doesn't mean that you're not there. It means that we need you. Thank you for the faith that is demonstrated in some of the darkest corners of the earth. Reminding us that sometimes in the midst of the most severe suffering, there is the greatest faith. Teach us to have that kind of confidence in you. In our comfortable, convenient lives, we have so many options. We have so much extra. 
Father, I pray you would remind us that not only are you out there, but that one day the scales will be balanced. And I thank you that because of your son, we can be standing on the right side of that judgment. I pray these things because of him, with faith in him, and in his name. Amen. Okay, gang, hope you have a fantastic week. On your way out, take a look at the clock. Last week, I held you five minutes late. This week, five minutes early. Bam! Have a great week.